Agent's report. At 1900 hours, checked into the pantry at location. Redacted. Agent Cross reporting in. Fondue had not let yet assembled. So I wrote my report regarding the... Employee of the Month commendation which was given to... Baby in a fly flaming tire with a knife. Not that his, he doesn't do good work, but I just felt that uh, after the number of assignments that uh, Fondue and myself had been asked to tend to, we'd be, uh, you know, given a little bit more Charmander! 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 Excuse me. <laughs> um, anyways, 1900 at the pantry. Waiting for the other half of Fondue. Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode oh. of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-MC. That's right. It's McGill. Had a special hell intro a, there. Hell of an intro there, Tom. Yeah, special intro because uh, we're doing, we're going to be playing out some City of Mist shenanigans in uh, the RPG Danger Room when we get to it. That's right. For the first time ever, we're actually going to play an RPG on Compare and Campaign so that you, Tom, and the listeners can see or hear, I suppose, the mechanics of City of Mist in action. And I think that as limited as this uh, experiment is going to be, I think that it it's a good exercise to sort of break down an RPG to its core components for this kind of analysis and see how they hold up is like what what's the key things that you can break down into like a quick little sesh and give people have them make their characters and have it all play out like a little snapshot of what to expect from the game i know we struggled with it in burning wheel we went from uh a crowd of goblins shooting at one guy to a crowd of goblins shooting at a crowd of guys to a goblin shooting at an elf it got all over the place. I just really wanted to get that scene in my head, but it kept changing. Well, fear not. We have a little mini adventure in City of Mist for you. And, I mean, I know we have a lot to cover on this episode, but if we have the time, maybe we'll also talk a bit about Teeth, uh, which is a game uh, forged, uh, forged in the darkness, right? Uh, forged in the dark, yeah. Forged in the dark. Forged in the game. dark, a uh, game that you you ran a beta test for. We won't. We don't have to get too deep into it. I don't know if we can, you know, talk too much about the beta test. But I did notice a lot of similarities between the Forged in the Dark system and the Powered by the Apocalypse system that we could discuss a little bit, perhaps. Yeah, and the the thanks, the thank yous in the uh, towards the beginning of Teeth, uh, the current beta test, do mention both uh forged in the dark and powered by the apocalypse so worth mentioning ah, there. well there it is um yeah it's something i'd mentioned on the show before is that in that thank you i think it says and powered by the apocalypse uh without which uh blades in the dark wouldn't exist or something and i that is not a lineage that i was previously aware of i may actually want to just quickly investigate to make sure that quote is correct uh teeth would not exist without blades in the dark nor it without apocalypse world there we go ah so there it is um 
But that explains it. You know, we got all that. Uh, we got all this to cover, and I have a new act to introduce. Act four of Coyote's Aegis, titled Introm. This is uh, in Introm. It, it's not the interim. It's the Introm. Introm, like uh, I N T R A U M. Uh, I believe this is another Introm. Like, Introm. I I was thinking of like trauma. Traum? Trauma. Yeah. Introm, as in trauma. Uh, but yeah, this is, uh, an album by Kralis and, uh, Kralis, uh, so I've gone over this on a previous episode when we talked about the Arctopus, but basically Kralis is a band, uh, formed by the guy from Behold the Arctopus. Uh, on one occasion I've spoken about before, I went and saw him live and I talked to him about this setting I've created, but basically in the fiction of Drail, um, the connection is that Kralis is like the elven name for the Arctopus or for that uh, nation that they have on the Arctopus. And I think that uh, upon reaching this act, um, I mean, you'll see, but one of the things in this act is that the Arctopus has returned to Drail, but has docked or, you know, uh, latched on adjacent to the to the Deathlands. And I think that my reasoning here was that Introm was then going to be the elven name for the Deathlands. Uh, you know, just sort of taking the the weird words and applying them to the fiction, you know? In Trom. And, uh, yeah, it is the 29th of November, 2022. I don't know if I said that. It's uh, episode 131. Had it written in my notes as 130, but in fact, 130 was the second half of the the previous thing, you know? I got all mixed up in my notes there. And, yeah, I mean, really, the next op I have that I'm doing is Operation Dimensional Bleed Through, but there's so much crossover stuff to cover between the previous act and this one. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how far we'll get. I guess I better just jump into it. Is there anything else? Is there anything you want to talk about before we jump into it? I don't think we can spare the minutes. There's something we talked about on the show that you told me about, and I feel like we should address because it was a previous topic on the show. I saw Barbarian. And oh, right. Okay. Are I you, was are right. Talk about Barbarian? was trying to make me think of Martyrs when he was talking about Barbarian. But it just I wasn't trying it just to don't go as hard as Martyrs. Though. That does that's that makes it sound like I want something edgier than I do. It's just that um Barbarian like when it is it is still like a mystery, it is very scary and very tense. And then as soon as like it started to get revealed, it kind of started to fall apart for me. Um it it just it doesn't uh like there there's decent ideas going on there but not 
mind-blowing ideas like I find are at work in Martyrs. And I should say, I, I defend Martyrs a lot, but like I think Martyrs could be better than it is. I think you could do a better version of, of Martyrs. So uh, you might recall, uh, I said I didn't like totally love Barbarian, but I thought it was a good movie. And uh, you and I talked about it off the air, and we sort of came down in the in the same spot for it. Um, really, like I, I I wasn't trying to recommend it in as like a, a as being comparable to Martyrs. It was, and I mean, you saw it right away when you were watching. It. it was really just that it reminded me. The whole setup reminded me of Martyrs, especially this idea. And I guess I shouldn't spoil Barbarian, but. Uh, this idea of sort of like going as you go deeper and deeper inside a structure, so too do you go deeper and deeper into like horror and reveal more and more of the story as you go. Yeah, I just wish there was more down there. Yeah, the another thing that I had said to you was that I kind of feel like it's a it's like a one and done for me. Like, I watched it, and I had a good time with it, but I don't feel like, like, unlike Martyrs, uh, where a repeat viewing with the knowledge of what happens after reveals a whole lot more about the story to you, uh, I don't think that's the case with Barbarian. I don't think if I watched it again, I'd suddenly pick up on some hint at what would happen later that I missed the first time around. You know what I mean? That's part of why it, it's such a good movie to watch blind, like to go into knowing as little as possible, because you just have no idea where it's going to go, because there's no real like clues that that's where it's going to go in advance. Yeah, so I don't know if we have too much more to say about that. Um, beyond that, do we just want to jump right into Act 4? Barbarian was good. Let's go to Act 4. Coyotes Ages Act 4 in Trump. Man, where do we even begin? So I guess, first of all, is after all of the previous act of Act 3, the Citra Arha tour, after all of that, our main objective there was to choose the vessel for the cult of one. Do you remember that? Because I, I, I would be unsurprised if you had forgotten that that was the main goal over the course of the act. Uh, I forgot the part about choosing a vessel, but I do remember the cult of one. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, the cult of one is still uh, a key plot point. It's just that, like, one of the me main things that they were supposed to do while going into Citra Arha. You remember I posed that situation of, like, they need to find a vessel for the Cult of One, and some of their obvious candidates include Odium or o one of Odium's children. Um, but then the risk with that is, like, well, then if we give one of our powerful allied NPCs over to this Cult of One and it turns out to be, like, a bad thing, then that then we've lost a powerful allied NPC. At the same time, there was the opportunity to assign the Cult of One to a Nightside Eclipse vessel, since the key point here is basically like a, a certain level of an artificial 
um, an artificial organism or like structure, like an artificial body that the cult of one, like because a natural body basically can't, isn't designed to sustain all these uh, ministry parasites that uh, compose the cult of one. So you need to have sort of like a cyborg or something or a robot or something equivalent to that. And so Odium and his children, quote unquote, fall under that category. But so do all the Nightside Eclipse as sort of like undead uh, biomechanical uh, members of this of this larger faction. And so. One of the things, again, the, the issue is like, well, if we choose someone that's allied with us and this breaks bad for us, then it is bad for our the ally we choose. But alternatively, if they choose somebody from the Nightside Eclipse or from Citra Arha, then it could break bad the other way where the Cult of One empowers that otherwise hostile vessel and uh, then that would be sort of the problem to deal with. So one of the things that, like, like certainly once we hit the end of the act, it was like, okay, we've met all of the characters we met in Citra Arha over the course of the last act. And we have Odium and Odium's children as candidates. And like... I probably would have opened it up to, like, if the players could have thought of other NPC candidates that seemed like they would fit, uh, that would have been an option. But I think it basically came down to, at the end of Act 3, it's like, do we want to have gut bones arrange to, like, send someone that we met in Citra Arha to us to become the vessel of the Cult of One? Or do we go back effectively empty-handed and choose one of the people that was with the Empok from the beginning, having decided that we don't want to go with any of the candidates out of the entire population of Citra Arha? And so, uh, McGill, I imagine you may be in a similar predicament to where my players were at this point, where I asked them and basically they had the entire list of NPCs from Citra Arha to choose from and Odium and his children, Professor Lux, Faye Serpentine, and Dan Terminate. This was like the the time I mentioned before where like there was a point like I confronted the characters with, with this and I think Marianne had said to Alex like I don't know who the fuck any of these people are. <laughs> like this is actually it's funny because crossing over into the next act is when i began introducing the idea of like the portrait board in roll 20 and having like portrait images for every npc that i introduce uh to have something to like a, a face to put to a name um because when we got to the end of this act like man how many of the NPCs from this act can you name or describe, do you think, McGill? Well, this isn't fair because I have this portrait board in front of me, Tom. Yeah, but none of these people are actually from the last act. These are all from 
the like act that is just about to start. Like these are all people that were relevant to the first operation of the act I'm starting. So none of these are people they met in Citra Arha. Okay, let me see if I can remember from from all the editing I've done on these because I've definitely like I gotta take note of them. Um but wait, wait, like, uh, Satariel, isn't he from Citra Arha? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I, he is in the picture yeah, list he, here. Yeah, but but I would have remembered anyway, because he's, he's LeChuck the Pirate. Um, there was, uh, oh, the, in the most recent episode that I edited, there was an Ultroloth, not an Ultraloth, named Ron. But unfortunately... Because that's an Ultraloth and not uh, like a Nightside Eclipse person. That would not oh, you're be a talking suitable specifically, vessel. vessel. Yeah. You're, okay, so you're talking specifically about Undead, NPCs. liches, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, the locals, when they were doing their tour. The, the locals. There was... Uh, uh, was Rex? Yeah. Was Rex one of them? Rex is one of the, he's the uh, cyborg goblin vampire of worship, uh, ruler of worships. And uh, wasn't there also uh, May? Was May one of uh, yeah. the? After yeah. Rex, May was the demon corrupted former vampire ruler of Maritime uh, who was uh, lurking in the place that Ron gave them access to. See, I'm trying to remember all the ones with the the mundane names because those are the ones that really stick out to me. Um, was there like a like Angela? Was Angela? Uh, there's an Angelique, I believe. Angelique. Somewhere. Angelique. Yeah, there um, she is. Is she? Yeah. So she counts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got a list here, so. Yeah, that's as that's as much as I got. So I basically had to make this list so that I could refresh the players' memories because uh, after everything, it was like I don't know who who what I yeah like, who's it gonna be oh boy yeah and and there's kind of a hint there because one of these people is included in the portraits that I included for this coming operation that I mentioned. So I will say that. Uh, well, well, we'll 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 get to it when we get to it. So, uh, I don't know if there's even any particular order here, but I have listed. Uh, we got Lorelei from Lorelei from the Sway. Uh, she was um, she was matched via the Chessie's Cupid's program uh, with Moloch, and thus was an ally and gave the party a boat. She had an iron crown, pale skin, and a white dress. Uh, Angelique, who we mentioned, she was in Rhythm. Uh, she was neutral, unmatched. Uh, oh, no. That's not right, because she was matched. She was matched with um, uh, the guy from... Yeah, she was uh, matched with Shaitanis, uh, who wanted... He wanted to transfer to Rhythm, and she wanted to transfer away from Rhythm. She had angel wings, red robes, a white mask, and 
I don't know what the hell I've written here. Three pikes o horns. Three three types of horns. Oh no! Three pairs of horns on the mask. Okay. Three pairs of horns. Yeah, pikes o horns. Um, Venus uh, in Omino. Uh, who they matched with Bale, uh, gave Jen a motorbike. She was an elven vampire, uh, a, sort of a scout, ranger, or archer. Uh, Moloch, who we mentioned before, was matched with Lorelai. He was also in the sway with her. Um, he had bull horns, many eyes. He was furry and like kind of tribal looking. Uh, we had Poppy in Worships, uh, who ran the Batcob Sanctuary. Uh, was uh, the caretaker and was matched with a staff uh, of others to assist her at the sanctuary. Was a vampire with gray robes, fine gloves, and a, a long blonde hair and a black cloak. And uh, gifted Mephili a bat cob. Uh, I think uh, a bat cob by the name of Tralia. I think she was like half blind or something. Because... Um, uh, Mephili already had, like, a Batcob kitten she had gotten at the marketplace towards the end of the previous tour in Drail in the Deathlands. And so I think that she found that Tralia, this, like, half-blind Batcob, like, warmed up to her Batcob kitten and decided to, like, uh, adopt both, uh, the, adopt the older. Uh... Got Seth from the Gigalich, and a hostile trog, the only person they didn't find a match for in the Chessie's Cupid's program. He had a collar of bone spikes, and he was an undead tribal chieftain. Uh, Sophia, who uh, was originally from Worships, but then uh, assisted them. Uh... Now, what? A... No, no, I, I think I see. I think it's the other way around is they met her on Rhythm, but then it was one of the things where they like set her up to work for Poppy in uh, worships. Um, she was like a plain zombie lady that helped them uh, when they were trying to get into Belphegor's palace. She was the one who told them about the, uh, about how Beelzebub had been possessed. Uh, Bale in Omino uh, was matched with Venus. The, uh, the, girl who gave Jen the motorbike and he's the one that's like wheelchair bound um arab zarak in larvae uh he's the only non-trog alley they have in larvae after the scam the forgery scam that they pulled there um but he's the one that they got the original deed from that they then used to do the forgery scheme uh siren uh she is the last holdout against the corrupt lich Lilith in Omino, and thus was also uh, transferred to worships to uh, sort of mount the resistance from uh, Poppy's Batcob sanctuary. We got Calliope from Maritime. Uh, she is the Nightside Eclipse archivist who signed off on the Drail uh, non-aggression pact. We got Gagiel from the Gigalich. Uh, he basically, so when they were leaving the Gigalich, they made a deal with the Trog Bacchus to help him and his faction escape through the Glimmer Funnel when they did, but they also arranged to have Gagiel sort of, uh, seize power in the vacuum once Bacchus had left through the Glimmer Funnel. Uh, we got Talia, 
the loyal servant of Mebdak in the realm of Swarth. Uh, we got Adramalek. They never met him. Uh, they ignored him. Uh, Astaroth. They barely met him. They never. They wait, pretty much wait. ignored him. <laughs> so you've got these listed, even if they they basically had no interaction. Yeah, I mean, just for my own part, like I may, I I need to make sure that I wasn't forgetting anybody, right? Like ah. the the list has to be complete. And so, yeah, I think Dramalek was the guy that they were like driving along, and they saw him sort of like a hitchhiker, and they were just like, nah, fuck that. And then uh, Astroth is the one who is looking for intel on Shaitanis, and they were like, well, we just helped Shaitanis, so let's not give him the intel. Um, Gag Shabla uh, from Maritime, the one who was in charge of the anti-demon force in Maritime, working alongside Calliope. Uh, Vame in Larvae, he's the one I got the tattoo of. He's a friend of Gutbones and provided them with a van. Uh, Shaitanis, who we mentioned just earlier, is the one who was recommended to Belphegor for transfer to Rhythm. Um, Beelzebub, the one that, uh, was possessed by demons, and by dealing with that, you know, they were able to get access to Belphegor's palace and an audience with Belphegor himself. Uh, Lucifuge, who was in the Sway, uh, who was, uh, an apparent weapons designer for the Lich there, Nergal, who gave them an experimental Thanatos antimatter rifle in exchange for, uh, doing some investigation for him. Uh, Horror Elogium, who was involved in the same, uh, deal in the same place, basically, he was like a, a scientist who uh, worked in uh, uh, the Sway and sent them on, like, basically the place that Lucifuge wanted to know about was the same place that Horrorologium had sent them to, like, uh, investigate what was going on. They found, like, some crazy experimental demon stuff down there. Uh, Horrorologium was also transferred to go uh, work with the Resistance in the Batcob Sanctuary with Poppy. Uh... There's the curator, who uh, we know from back in Al's Aces when they were, like, first entering. He had, like, a big speaker for a head, but uh, they actually never ran into the curator. Uh, Max Arachnov, the uh, embattled lich ruler of the realm of Larvae, who they left on bad terms with, or one can assume because they uh, scammed him with their little deed to the power plant forgery when they were in larvae as uh as uh hexakilo would say we can never go back to larvae uh may who we mentioned corrupted vamp former vampire ruler of maritime uh marduk they never met him uh rex the uh cyborg goblin vampire ruler of worships nama uh the lich ruler of Ilumorphim, who they uh <laughs> quote-unquote, assisted by looking at their sickly uh, seer, Cassandra, but also in tending to that seer, uh, assassinated them. So, you know, mixed bag there. Um, Zamiel, the scholar that they rescued from the demons in Maritime. Uh, Satariel, the worship security chief who had been working for Rex that they r rescued from demonic invaders. Mebdak, the goblin lich ruler of Swarth that they met 
when they first arrived in Citra Arha, who was conducting strange experiments like the one with the goat, the two-headed goat demon. Uh, Thagirion, they uh, never met. Oh, that's the guy that they just straight up passed by. They were like, nah. Let him let him walk. Uh, and I, I love getting this insight into the stuff that didn't wind up uh, in your actual adventure. You know, I've talked in the past about how I will construct sometimes entire branches of an adventure that the players don't go down. And I bemoan that, you know, wasted potential. And sometimes I recycle those unused bits uh, for future adventures. But I rarely hear about what didn't make the cut in yours. So it's neat to hear about these NPCs that the players just kind of passed by. Yeah. And we got one more is finally, uh, previously in the Gigalit, but now in larvae, as I mentioned, there was the Trog leader Bacchus, uh, who they helped, uh, to, uh, infiltrate the realm of larvae via the Gloomer funnel. And so that's our big old list. And all of that, all that to say, like, man, what a list. What a list to go through and all that that they got to consider. They got all those names are candidates plus, well, I guess I also have, like I had mentioned, like which ones are on good terms with them and which ones are not and whatnot. And so, like... They have that whole list to draw of candidates to draw from, but really some of them they can like cross out. So I, I listed all of them off and also said like this one is probably not a good choice. But then there were other ones that I'm like, this one you were you left on pretty good terms with. Uh Poppy would be one of those, obviously, but so is Rex. Um Satariel was one. I think Zamiel, like anyone that they actively rescued, they probably have pretty good points with um but then as i mentioned there's also the question of like do you want to pick none of the above and then go back and pick odium or one of odium's children either professor lux face serpentine or dan terminate and um beyond that Beyond that decision, there's also the note that we ended the last session on, basically, which is that Gutbones helped them to get back to Drail, and because Gutbones has been helping them through the whole time, like he is able to ensure that there's no temporal dissonance, so they don't end up coming back like six years after they thought they were coming back or whatever, which has been a problem with travel to Citra Arha is like agents come back and it's been like half a year when for them it's only been a month but um Gutbones arranged for them to head back but also said like i'm gonna stay behind to help with this revolution in citra arha against the against the demonic invaders because the um the omni lich doesn't seem to be uh taking the right uh measures to counteract this invasion and then also they've just managed to secure this treaty of nightside eclipse non-aggression against drail so there's all that and with all this to consider the party decided that they were going to go with satariel the guy who looks like the 
zombie pirate LeChuck, the kind of pirate-looking undead security chief who they rescued from demons who previously worked for Rex. They decided that he was the one that they were going to call in the favor with. They were basically going to say, like, look, we rescued you from the demons. We we went through with your like you asked us to help you get to the next realm and like rescue Zamiel and help make the plan to deal with the uh like the demonic super mutants so it's basically like you owe us we've done a lot for you and even done enough that like you we've had an impact that will make a lasting difference for the nightside eclipse in this war effort and so in exchange for that you're going to come back to our realm with us now to help us with something we need hey uh does satariel talk like a pirate does he talk like lechuk no because not if, really if he looks like lechuk in my head i've just been imagining him as lechuk i mean i kind of just i don't know how much of a unique pirate voice i think of lechuk as having like i mean satariel i sort of imagine as having kind of a gruff voice because he's like you know he's a he's a nightside eclipse like security chat captain he's sort of like an undead like guard captain sort of position i think um so i think that's how i generally imagine him but also with what i said about like you know my sort of half failed attempt to give a sort of local like an almost british dialect to the people of citra arhan stuff maybe it makes more sense if he does have kind of a pirate voice but also i've like the thing is since they chose him to be the vessel for the cult of one now i am at the point where i am having to play satariel as the cult of one and i'm also kind of split on how i want to do his voice at that point as well because i'm not sure if i want it to be like kind of a a sinister spooky voice for the cult of one because like they don't know like it's an assembly of parasites or do i want it to be like still satariel's voice but just talking with the cult of one's mind or you know do i is it neither do i kind of just want to have more of like an expository npc that way so i want to talk sort of like normally so i don't have to think about it all the time like and and honestly i'm not sure i've been terribly consistent between any of the three so i don't know maybe maybe i'll just uh try and find whatever fits and go along with that i guess the point i i guess the thing is at this point i've been i've had the character in play long enough that if i give him a way different voice now it'll be really jarring so like yeah yeah i have to have to thread that uh needle i don't know you ever deal with that trying to figure out how a character should sound yeah, I'm I'm actually not great about character voices. I, if it's an extreme one, I can I can maintain it, you know, like a big sort of crazy voice. But I don't know. I, I tend to to find myself concentrating too much on like what's going to happen next to the adventure, and I drop the voice and instead just say, you know, like ah, oh, he says it's up the road. I I find that teeth inspires me to like my most consistent effort 
in like accent work. I don't know how much that came across uh, in our game. But the thing is, like, there's a tendency for when I'm trying to convey information to the players, particularly as a quest giver or, like I say, in a sort of expository role, where I kind of just end up talking like I've been talking just now, you know? Is it's like, I just want to convey the information similar to how I'm trying to convey the information right here on this podcast. Yeah, that's sort of what I mean, is like, I'll start, and I'll start, and my character sounds a bit like this, and he's going to talk to you a bit. But then, as I go on, because I want to focus on exposition, because I'm calling for checks, and because I'm thinking about what's going to happen next in the story, I'll often eventually move out of that and just say like, yeah, he he's being intimidating towards you. He he calls you a son of a bitch. And I don't, but oh, you call you, you a son of a bitch. I don't bother with that sort of thing, you know? Yeah, I, I definitely, I think it's good to fall back on that narrator voice. Like, just be like, oh, he basically tells you this. I don't know. Did I do that in the, in our teeth session? I feel like I probably did, but I can't remember. You know, I don't remember offhand, but I do remember you doing some accents. I mean, uh, got Callum there with his cracking voice. Oh, see, have you seen Miss Gallerina, etc. Um, so, the party returns to Drail with Satario. Um, they debrief with the MPOC, and there is a sort of uh, advised... I don't know if I made it mandatory, but it was definitely a strongly advised medical checkup based on the idea of like, well, you've just come back from your tour in Citra Arha. Let's have a look at you to make sure you're still all there. And it's a good thing because like even with the medical checkup, there was the fact that Connor had consistently had these whispering voices in his head ever since they had been in the Gigalich, when they were kind of just trucking along through the Gigalich, through this horrible, wasted planet, wasted world, as they uh, went on their sort of mind-numbing night drive, Con Connor had picked up these sort of whispering voices in the back of his head. And even after getting back and doing the medical checkup, it took 10 days before he eventually lost those voices um but following their return they had two weeks of downtime to look forward to and so there was a whole lot of backstory player stuff subplot stuff i had to take care of in this two weeks of downtime so first of all hexakila he's had his hit list he's been hunting down all the various undead that uh, the ghouls that the Raven Queen has been able to sort of uh, identify for Hexakila as having been involved in the massacre of his village, the death of his wife, etc. We even had a little flashback to a moment where Hex had to choose whether he stood by his wife and defended her or rushed to help some uh, hapless local... Uh, children who are being attacked by uh, ghouls, some lizard man children. And so having uh, carried out a number of these assassinations to strike fear into the heart of the Nightside Eclipse, Hex is given sort of the last few targets on his list back in Drail 
which lead him to the completion of his ghoul hunt, uh, where he he's he returns to uh, his old village and he tracks these ghouls uh, into the wilderness. He tracks one up into the high mountains of Tristania, and once he has slain them all, is also uh, worth saying. So there is a character that was uh, introduced. I think maybe around this time um no i think that she was introduced before uh around the time that hexakila like got on the path of the raven queen but sort of resurfaced here is basically this idea of there is an avian by the name of noah uh, who I flavored as being like a duck avian, basically, like kind of like a mallard. And uh, this mallard by the name of Noah, uh, she crosses paths with Hexakila while he's on his ghoul hunt, and she's sort of hunting undead herself. And um, when Hexakila is finishing his ghoul hunt, he once again crosses paths with Noah. Uh, who is also hunting the ghouls because th this was the thing I mentioned about he hunts one of the ghouls up into the mountains and that's where he met Noah originally and this is where he runs into her again. But with the completion of Hexakila's ghoul hunt, I sort of had him with this like, you know, audience with the Raven Queen where... He was offered a choice of paths. There was basically a path like there were the the Raven Queen sort of offered Hex this symbolic choice of two paths, with one path being like you continue on as an agent of the Raven Queen, you continue along this path that you have begun as an assassin, or you having taken your judgment turn away from this path and become someone who like rather than becoming an agent of death takes this chance to turn away from this path and embrace life and it's funny because i think that there was part of the motivation like hex chose the path of life basically and i think part of the motivation for that was this idea that, like, there's a certain level of... Uh, there's a certain sense of, like, familiarity, I think, between the character of Valfar and Draglin guy and Hexakila. And if Hexakila became this sort of dark agent of death, there would be that much less separating him from the black dragonborn black metal bard that is Valfar Ein Draeglin guy. Like, I think when my brother saw this opportunity to either play, like, the dark version of this character or the light version of this character, I think the light version, like, jumped out at him as the more unique or the more, like, path not taken uh, relative to characters he'd played previously. And... um so one of the things that went into this is uh, instead from basically from this point forward, instead of focusing on this idea that um, 
Hexakila is like an assassin or an agent of the Raven Queen, we started leaning much more into the idea of him being like an aspiring chef, basically. Um, and, you know, it goes back to uh, meals that he'd been cooking on the trail and stuff, but then like really started to take off here. So I had, uh, for example, here I like at this act break, I gave each character uh, tr like a special feat or like character upgrade. And for Hex, it was determined by which path he took. And so had he taken the path of the Raven Queen, he would have gotten uh, basically access to the ability uh, Dark One's Blessing, which is a Warlock ability. To, uh, I think it's specifically tied to the Fiend Warlock path. Um, or the one that he got was a cooking-based variant of the Inspiring Leader feed, where basically with Inspiring Leader, every time you take a rest, you can give like a rousing speech to your comrades, and that gives them temporary HP. But in this case, uh, Hexakila cooks up a dope meal if they make a rest, as long as Alex describes it to me uh, and how he made it the uh, party gets the benefit of that temporary HP equal to his hey, level. Hey, I like that. Um, Yum. Man, the thing is, there's so much more that uh, went into Hexakila's story that I'm not sure even, like, made it into my notes here. Is The thing is, like, so then he ends up in a romantic relationship with uh, Noah... And then Noah and Hexakila, at some point, basically, you know how I had set up that thing of he had had to make the choice of either in the flashback to the attack on his village, he had to either stand by his wife and defend her or like save some village kids. Yes, I remember that. So then basically I had that, I established then that that kid is still out there and is now basically like a teenager that has been living in the wild as kind of like a feral lizard man. And so now uh, Hexakila is like in a relationship with Noah. He's pursuing his passion as a, as a, as an aspiring chef and he adopts, uh, a teenage lizard he has an adopted teenage lizard man's son who is like uh sort of feral and uh alienated from the ways of society that's all going on with with Hexakila calavera and his path of life um deep dude uh meanwhile on connor's side of things uh connor uh, spends a lot of time in prayer and is granted audience an audience with Paylor and receives a blessing called the Eyes of Dawn, which basically he becomes he gains these like glowing eyes, and Connor becomes immune to blindness and gains the benefits of another warlock uh, invocation, Devil's Sight, which is allow allows you to see in uh, magical like see through both darkness. Like darkness, whether it's magical or not, you can see through darkness. So basically, uh, Connor is given blessed sight by his sun god. 
Mephili receives word of the coming revolution in her homeworld of Thress. And Atuin returns to Drail via the Arctopus, because I mentioned one of the big things happening in this act is that the Arctopus has returned to the Drail, but Atuin had gone on a little uh, journey of self-discovery when last we saw him, and now the Arctopus has come back, and he's come back with it, having spent a little time uh, docked alongside the Arctopus while it was out away from Drail, and he's uh, taken an interest in magic. He's decided, you know, he's met his uh, his granddad, Woe Fat, and everything. He's he's met other dragons, and he's sort of got an idea that, like, so dragons usually have a horde, but uh, Atuin is thinking that his horde is going to be magical in nature. Maybe he's going to hoard magical knowledge or artifacts or something. And uh, Mephili's special benefit uh, from her growing connection with the Godseed Fragment is uh, Mephili's spells, as long as they are not cantrip level, always Wild Surge now. Anytime that she, like she does, it used to be we had it set up. So generally if she rolled a 20 when making a roll for, or, or like anytime she rolled a spell that was level one or higher like not a cantrip i'd have her roll a die and if that came up a 20 or a one i think i'd roll a wild surge but now anytime she wants to wild search she just asks for it and she does wild search um the other thing oh when she casts a spell i should say and another thing about that i don't know if i ever mentioned this is that the way that i ran mephili's wild surges is that there is like the D100 table that is in the 5e player's handbook. But then on Donjon, uh, the website we've mentioned a number of times, donjon.bin.sh, um, they have a sort of random wild surge generator that will generate a list of 10 wild surge uh, results at a time based on the level of the spell you cast and basically so i had a sort of like like the wild surges that i ran in my game for mephili were actually more random than the ones in the d100 system because when she rolled a wild surge what i did is i clicked i asked the level of the spell she cast I picked that level in the Donjon Wild Surge Generator. It generated 10 options, like, from however it generates them. And then I would have Mephili roll a D10 and pick the corresponding result uh, from that list of 10. And so that list of 10 was always different. And so there was, like, really no way of telling uh, what results she would get when she had a Wild Surge. But... Now she gets them all the time. Uh, Gent's tribe, the Bonesong Kenku, had established a bardic college in the time since uh, Gent had been gone. And since Chantel needed to take a break from the game, Gent spent Act 4 receiving free tutelage at her uh, tribe's bardic college for an extended period, uh, which would eventually grant them the boon of skill when they returned to the game in the next act. So basically, Gent is getting a free, uh, like, multi, like, like, multi-curricular... Uh, college course just like getting taught all the all the learnings 
uh, that her tribe can possibly offer. When she comes back, she's going to be an educated Kenku. They are going to be an ex educated Kenku. Sorry. It's a gender-neutral burb. Uh, Dimzad, the uh, Dwerger arms dealer that I established is active in Dre, makes uh, in Drail, has made contact with Hexakila, revealing that the MPOC has cracked down on his arms trade uh, in the interim, and he wanted to make some important exchanges with the gunslinging lizardmen. Most notably, there are guns that Hexakila has that uh, he had gotten from Dimzad that Dimzad is basically not allowed to sell anymore, and the Empok has like effectively like knocked over his his stock been like hey you can't sell this like you can't just sell all these guns get the fuck out of here and so now dimzad is like hey do you still have that crazy gun i made you because uh i need it i need that back <laughs> um so with satarial chosen as the vessel for the cult of one the players were told it would take some time for the entity to be channeled into the host um mpoc rnd including dax and professor lux uh, unveiled the latest upgrade in the form of the Ares Assault Rifle to their armory. The latest upgrade to the armory. The Ares Assault Rifle model is now just a full-on AK-47. Classic. Um, then, something really crazy happens in Drail. You know, when they got to the end of the tour of of drail the the oregon trail like the first two acts when they got to the end of it they had reached the kingdom of tristania where the war was still raging they were on the front lines uh the Draelic and empok forces were laying siege to this undead this last holdout undead kingdom on the sort of like eastern edge of the deathlands do you remember that Wait, what was it called? Tristania? Yeah, of course. The place where everybody's sad. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one thing. Um, so, the thing is, Tristania, like, like the players went to Citra Arha, but in the meantime, the war has still been raging. The, the front line is still at Tristania, and they've been laying siege to this kingdom for a while. But they get back... And there's news that the city of Tristania has surrendered in the two weeks of downtime following their return from Citra Arha. The city of Tristania announces their surrender and requests a parlay, a, a parlay with Valfar Eindragling Guy himself. Like, of all the people, the person that they ask to speak with, like, for terms of their surrender, is the black metal black dragonborn bard who comes for, he's the warden scald of the north uh he he's the one who hunted uh nadia the crimson queen all the way to Tr tristania and like had that epilogue scene in the at the end of al's aces where he got into a huge fight with her and then like they met up with him back at the front lines like he's been really at the front lines of this of this war effort against tristania all this time but when the city surrenders they say we want to we want valfarine draglin guy to come and meet us in like the the no man's land and we're gonna send our delegation as well and their delegation comes to meet 
with Val Farang Draglin guy. And you know who it is? I don't, Tom. Who is it? Is someone named Tristan? It's Biff. Do you remember Biff? Boy, I only, honestly, I only remember making jokes about Biff's name. Do you know, do you remember the Mentu Dynasty? Uh, again, that rings a bell, but no, no, uh, I'm drawing a blank. So way back in Empok's Finest, Empok's Finest were the first Empok agents to ever go beyond the Deathlands border and carry out operations behind enemy lines, like within the Deathlands. And the first people, like the first people that they ran into or, or up against, or the first leaders of the Nightside Eclipse that they had trouble with, is there was a family of undead alchemists by the name called the Mentu Dynasty uh, that had that owned basically property, sort of stretching out beyond the town of South Haven along the border. Uh, one of them they actually ran into at the oasis, uh, which was like where Hexakila's village had originally been, like been set up around. This is where those lizard men lived. But like. The Mentu dynasty, they went sort of from, like, alchemy lab to a state and whatnot. The the Empox Finest went from the to the Mentu dynasty's various holdings and sort of fucked them up and destroyed them um, as, like, the first real Nightside Eclipse villains that they encountered upon entering the Deathlands. But when they went to the estate of the Mentu dynasty and plan to, like, rig their alchemist lab to blow up the whole place uh, on their last mission. Or, or sorry, not even on their last mission. While they were, like, raiding the holdings of the Mentu dynasty, they encountered the sort of black sheep of the family, the, the dunce son, Biff Mentu, who all he wanted was to make friends. He didn't want to be an evil undead alchemist. They found that he had... Uh, you know, like love potions that he'd made. And so he'd been using the family's alchemical secrets just to try and make someone like him. He was so, he was sad and, and they, they spared Biff Mentu. Biff Mentu defected and helped them to basically sabotage the alchemical lab that destroyed the final, like Mentu estate. That's Biff. Poor old Biff, a kind of, uh, you know, goofy uh loser of a of a son a of buffoon. a buffoon yeah like kind of kind of the pathetic son of a of an evil family who didn't want to inherit that legacy so valfar is reunited with biff who i will say alex didn't remember either didn't remember who biff was but he did remember zog the ogre zombie that so long ago, Valfarine Dreglin guy had taken pity on during an operation and asked the <laughs> MPOC, is there anything we can do for this poor guy? And they were like, well, we can like send him to the underworld where he belongs, but otherwise not really. We're like an anti-undead agency. And so Valfarine Dreglin guy is called to this parlay with the delegation offering Tristania's surrender out in no man's land. And he's brought to meet 
with two old old people from his past who he had shown kindness to a valfarine dragling guy the guy who drives a method driven sleigh hunts down vampires spits acid in people's faces he had of all the people in the empire he had shown these two nightside eclipse agents you know uh what's the word amnesty compassion whatever the case mercy and they so they beseeched him they came out as representatives of tristania and basically what's revealed is tristania the people of tristania have effectively voted no confidence on the nightside eclipse the nightside eclipse their lieutenants their vampires have been uh you know mounting trying to fight this this war they've been the city's been under siege for the entire time that the party's been in citra arha and so finally the you know nightside eclipse leadership these lieutenants these vampires all the people of the city are, are like you know what fuck you you don't represent us get out of our city you get out of here we're we're gonna we're gonna surrender the to the empok and we're gonna throw ourselves to their mercies because uh, you know what you're not winning the war and we don't actually think that worshiping your faction is like helping us that much and the thing is this is also that nightside eclipse non-aggression pact kicking in because these lieutenants can't get any more support from Citra Arha. They basically just suddenly got in a memo that's like, yeah, too much bad shit happening at on the home front. Can't support you in Drail anymore. Good luck. And so the lieutenants are like, oh, fuck, we're on our own. And all of the city of Tristania, who is just like zombies and skeletons, are like, you know what? Why are we listening to these guys? Get out of here. You leave. This, this is our city now. And so Valfar and Draglin guy, this this goofy zombie son of this alchemist dynasty and this zombie ogre, they come out and they're like, hey, the Nightside Eclipse doesn't run this place anymore. We've like become independent and we've got a new ruler there, but uh, we've got Goulet, the zombie queen, and we've got the skeleton witch. And those are our new leaders uh, our independent leadership in Tristania, and uh, we'd like to make an alliance with you guys if we could. We'd like to, you know, defer to your judgment. And uh, these old, these old friendly faces are reintroduced to Hexaki or to to Valfar and Draglin guy. Sorry, I may have screwed that up a few times now because Alex, my brother, played both characters. And the two character names are like right next to each other in my notes. So if I said Hexakila when I meant Valfrying Draglin Guy, hopefully that was clear. But all that to say, the vampires who represented the Nightside Eclipse, who were leading the Nightside Eclipse military forces in Tristania, have been ousted. Tristania has asked for peace with the Empok and Drail. They've announced independent leadership, and they're asking for Valfar to uh, pass judgment on them. And eventually, what's going to happen is that Valfar and Draglin guy is uh, 
sort of well this this is gonna happen later yeah I've, we'll we'll handle all that later um meanwhile hexaquila uh oh man this is such a big thing that I should save it for next time is that hexaquila then set up the sit down arha pop-up a pop-up restaurant catering to the Draelic army and Empok outside their headquarters. And uh, with big, this big project, the sit-down Arha pop-up, Hexakila served up a meal for Chessie and Dax's anniversary. And that's such a whole thing that I think <laughs> we're going to have to save it for another episode because um, I've already gone for like an hour here and I haven't even gotten to the operation. But I'll tell you another thing uh, before we get to the operation is that um, I had mentioned... I think I had mentioned that Mephili, she had that alien egg, remember? Yep. And I think when she went to Citra Arha, she had left it with Odium. He wanted to study it. Do you remember that? I recall, yes. They hadn't identified it, though? No, I don't believe so. Odium was kind right, of like, I, might, I, I don't know what this is. And he I might be getting my memories confused with the, the previous egg they had acquired, which is a dragon turtle egg, right? No, this, yeah, this is different from that. This was like yeah. when they were doing their tour of the Deathlands, they stopped in that town of uh, Beargate, and there right, was that open market. Uh and that yeah, was yeah. where I do, I do remember this one. I just I had I had forgotten that they hadn't identified it. This is where Mephili got both the uh, Batcob kitten that I mentioned and the alien egg, which like was a real mystery. And when Odium had like sort of briefed them on the on the cult of one thing, um, she showed the egg to Odium, and he's like, "I have no idea what this is, but uh, could I?" could you leave it with me and I'll study it for a while. And then while you do your job in Citra So at the beginning of this act as well, again, there's this two week period of downtime where all of this stuff is happening. Mephili's mysterious alien egg hatches and she w names the weird alien bug creature that emerges from it. Doom spelled D O O U M doom. Um, I have an image here. It's like a weird green spiky bug thing. Uh, the image, I believe, is actually supposed to be an artist's like, rendition of a more realistic take on the uh, Pokemon Scyther. Um, but it's like a scary-ass green, big green spiky bug. And um, Doom... Uh, it, uh, since it's in, like, since it's been kept by Odium in Odium's, like, sanctum in the Tristanian Mountains, where he is preparing the ritual to, uh, basically have Satariel be the vessel for the Cult of One, um, Duum takes a liking to Satariel, and, uh, it settles in for the long term, uh, yeah, the Doom basically, like, 
Satariel settles in for the long-term Cult of One channeling ritual, and Duom just sort of, like, perches on Satariel's shoulder while he's doing that. So now our zombie LeChuck has a little uh, alien bug creature uh, perched on his shoulder as he has a uh, confluence of... uh, psychic parasites channeled into him i believe i'm not sure if that's even the right use of the word but yeah i think that's all just set up for act four introm we didn't even make it to the operation man so much going on so many npcs tom yeah so we got they picked satarial as the cult of one vessel uh, they got a medical checkup. Connor ha- lost the voices in his heads. Hex completed his ghoul hunt. Uh, decides to choose the path of life. Uh, follows up on a relationship with Noah and adopts a teenage feral son. Uh, Connor gets eyes of Palor. Mephili, uh is reunited with Atwin, the Arctopus. That's the other thing, is that the Arctopus has latched, latched on to the Nightside Eclipse, or, or to the Deathlands, leaving it, like, right neighboring Tristania as this all unfolds. And that's going to be a big factor in the coming act. Uh, but yeah, Gent's going back to college. Uh, yeah. All sorts of stuff. We got AK-47s in the MPOC now. Tristania surrenders. And the sit-down pop-up, which I wanted to ask you, the sit-down pop-up. Sit-down Arha. The sit-down Arha pop-up. Did they also host stand-up? Ah, man, that's a good idea. They could have. Stand-up, stand-up at the sit-down pop-up. Because it was always, like, a pretty big thing of, like, a, a good, successful Chessie's Cupid's op would often involve, like, arranging a dinner, but then also, like, making some kind of a show and hey, or, like, arranging music go. or something. And so, but I think that, like, for Ches- for uh, Dax and Chessie's anniversary dinner, like, they did just go with, like, music or something. Connor played the harmonica. But did he actually play the harmonica? Not IRL, but like Connor, yeah. that was just like one of his things. He's a preacher, a missionary, a shotgun preacher, and played the harmonica. He was also the party's sort of animal guy, also the healer, also had immunity to blindness and the eyes of a sun god now. Um, but yeah, you can't just say sit down pop-up. It's the sit down arha. It's a play on teacher arha. It's brilliant. Sit down arha, but it's a pop-up. Yeah. Pop-up. Where they might uh, have stand-up. Nah, sit I don't down, think they did, though. S- sit down stand-up. So. So, Tom. McGill. Are we actually going to play an RPG on the podcast? Is well, it finally did you, time? Did you have any more uh, questions or comments about uh, this new act we're going into? This this transition point between acts three and four? don't really have any inquiries at present, but it sounds like there's still just loads more to come that I'm sure I'll have questions about. 
I don't know. What do you think about uh, like we we've come we've come so far. We've come a long way, and now it's at this point. Like, do you feel like at this point? Like when I say that the octopus is back, like does that mean something to you, or were, was it sort of like in your head, like the octopus, like you didn't know it was gone or anything? No, I mean the uh, the octopus returning seems like a bit of a an ominous sign, as it tends to happen, right? It seems like every time the octopus latches on somewhere, it brings with it. Like nothing but but chaos and pandemonium. Certainly social upheaval because you've got mm-hmm. suddenly uh, like a kingdom that wasn't neighboring anybody suddenly is neighboring another kingdom, or the Deathlands, or wherever they happen to be. Dark tidings, I say. The arrival of the Ar- uh, Arctopus does not bode yeah. well. The people of the Arctopus wouldn't like to hear you say that. Well, no, but I mean, that's just, that's part of it, right? What are they going to do? Kill me for it? Proven my point. No, they just like to think that they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're you remember, like, I, I've talked about, like, they're obsessed with uh, chance and fortune, you know? Mm-hmm. So if, if you, like, saddled them with an omen of bad fortune uh, archetype, they'd probably take offense to that. Do they not realize that they are, in fact, riding around on the back of a, a giant, uh, almost Cthulian, kaiju-esque monster? I think there's definitely been times in the Arctopus history where, like, the, uh, you know, social exchange of latching on next to, say, like, Goblin Town or, or Austin has been or not it couldn't be austin but like settlers green that's her settlers fields um like there must be points historically for the octopus where it's like oh it was a really good thing like suddenly we were next to all these great resources or suddenly we had all these great trade partners it's just that like yeah i guess for like the benefit of narrative tension and action i tend to have the octopus show up in a in a sense in, in a context where it ends up uh, being critical to the ongoing action of, of the setting. I mean, I said dark tidings, but most of the rest of what I said, uh, I stand by more, which is like, doesn't necessarily mean it's all going to be negative, but it, there's going to be chaos and upheaval. Yeah. Are we off to the RPG danger room? Not me. So here we are again. We've built you a character in City of Mist. We have gone over the mechanics of the game. And you were saying that you want to play a bit and just get a feel for how the whole system functions. You want to see it in action, right? Yeah. And so uh, I'm going to do sort of like a... This is going to be kind of a bare-bones adventure. I'm still, of course, going to use all, like, all the game mechanics and stuff, but this is going to be, like, really simplistic because I don't want this to go on for a gazillion episodes as, uh, as we play uh, an adventure, like a full-fledged crazy adventure. So what I've done is I've taken one of the sample cases from City of Mist. This is a sample case... A sample case. Uh, I'm not actually gonna say the the title because it might give away some of the game, but I will say 
uh, Amit, I can't, I should really look up how to pronounce this guy's name, Amit Moshe, or Amit Moshe, uh, who wrote City of Mist, um, he also wrote a couple of sample cases, and this is one of them. One of the two that sort of comes with the City of Mist bundle that you can buy. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to basically focus on two main scenes. Uh, the first is going to be investigation, because that uses a, sort of a different set of mechanics, and then a confrontation or a resolution, depending on how you handle this case. Um, but for this episode, we're just focusing on the first part. You've got a case, and you're going to try to solve it. Uh, are you ready, Tom? Are you ready, Special Agent Cross? Yeah, let's set the scene. Is Stinky right, Cheese sec. Man there? Yeah, one sec. Let me, let me just uh, make sure I got all my notes in order. Special Agent Cross. It is another cold night. The fall has set in on New York where we set our scene. And you are already at the pantry, your secret rendezvous point with the man-slash-creature-of-legend uh, who you have been as assigned to as a handler, Norb Snodgrass. And Norb is also at the pantry, and he's really agitated tonight. Because while working as, as a bag boy at his job at the grocery store, uh, he was eavesdropping in on conversations and uh, he overheard something that has really alarmed him. One of the regular customers of the grocery store, a woman by the name of Allison Craig, was telling the cashier that her daughter, Emily Craig, a local high school student, has gone missing. She has uh, been missing for since yesterday afternoon, and she didn't come back from school. Allison was obviously really distressed about this and talked about filing a missing persons report with the local PD, but of course, you know, her daughter hasn't even been gone for that long, so the local police, uh, they're dragging their feet a bit, getting around to investigating the disappearance of Emily Craig. Agent but Cross is like applying like a skittles flavored lip smacker to like his upper lip just like just above his upper lip and under his nostrils so that there's like a skittles scent in his nostrils instead like before any cheese smell and he he just keeps like as snodgrass has explained this to him he's basically saying all this stuff like well it'll uh, have to be a few has to be a certain amount of time before they can file a missing persons report like he's just like the the very like uh typical like unhelpful like you know by the figure books. of authority <laughs> yeah exactly norb on the other hand is a very fidgety guy he's got a lot of pent-up energy and uh, he's constantly sort of fidgeting, twiddling, you know, like rubbing his fingers together, uh, twiddling a pencil that's, you know, on the desk next to him. And he says, so that got me to thinking, you know, and I got a really good memory. I remember that just last week there was a different woman in saying her daughter had gone missing. And uh, and I found out later that 
uh, you know, this wasn't the first time it happened, not even the second time. These kids from this high school, they seem to, like, go missing, but uh, it, it seems to be, like, more than one kid, and the police just don't take these things seriously. Uh, the last kid who went missing, I heard they came back after a few days. They came back, but, like, a few days, right? Yeah, I just, it's it's really gotten under my skin, and I think we gotta look into this more. I mean, uh, we got a, a, a kid missing right now. Nobody knows where she is, and uh, her mother's just worried sick. I mean, I mean, surely, like, with your connections with the Bureau or something, we might be able to do something about this, right? Norb is like, you know, his foot is doing, like, the, the jiggy leg thing as he looks pleadingly at Agent Cross. Well, if you smell a pattern, I'm uh, happy to connect the dots. Let's get on it. Any of these children... Nor Norb sort of narrows his eyes like smell a pan. Yeah, I see what you did there. Don't don't think I don't see what you're doing. Uh, okay. I mean, I am applying Skittles flavored lip smacker to the uh, point between my upper lip and my nostrils, so as to mask whatever smells are in the area around me. That is Norb, what I am doing. Norb self consciously like gives his armpit a sniff to make sure his bo isn't too bad. But of course, he I just sort do of constantly. He just he just constantly <laughs> smells vaguely of of old cheese. Um, Is there any reason why the uh, like are these uh, children they uh, fall into a marginalized group or some such that the uh, police might not be paying adequate attention? From what you gather, from what Norb tells you, and like what he'd overheard, it really just seems to be that police don't take these disappearances seriously because the kids always turn up after a few days and they seem fine. Oh, okay. Norb is like, I, I don't I don't know any more details, man. I mean, come on, you're the you're the, the secret agent or whatever, aren't you? Alright, let's uh get on the case. I'm gonna print up some files with our classic sewer stain pantry printer and then i'm gonna t get some red yarn and i'm gonna pin them together <laughs> and then maybe uh is there a place we can go like the school maybe yeah i mean you print out your files you start arranging your classic conspiracy board with uh with red yarn and uh just sort of looking over uh, what few details you have, it seems like somewhere like the school would be a logical place to start, or maybe you could even go to uh, the missing girl's residence. Um, yeah, I... They, or they you, all... could even, you could even check in with, uh, with Director Bowman if you want to, like, escalate this uh, to sort of a higher level. Yeah, I think that's actually probably a good idea is uh, report a strange series of incidents involving these kids. Are these kids all from the same school? They're all the kids that Norb has heard of having gone missing are from the same school. All right, I think that we should go investigate the school and... I think uh, I should bump this up to Director Bowman so he can give us clearance to be a bunch of adult dudes walking around a school, but also um, so he knows that we're on the case. 
you give a quick call to Director Bowman, and he makes sure that you have clearance to investigate the school and the Craig residence if you so desire. And he says he's going to look into things on his end and see if uh, if local intel has caught uh, like caught any details about kids going missing or anything particularly shady going on within the time frame that Norb indicated. So you're going to head to the school? Yeah. Norb takes off his apron with the grocery store logo on the front, and he just looks like a fairly normy, uh, normal kind of schlubby guy. And the two of you proceed to, uh, to the high school, which I can't just call New York High School. West High. West High. I, I, got, I got one here. Um... We're not going to one of the, uh, I got a list here of high schools in New York City, and we're not going to any of the really big ones. So it looks like uh, Fiorello H. LaGuardia High School is where all these kids attend. Ah, LaGuardia. Norb shudders and says, makes me think of the airport. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very typical high school, especially for this neighborhood. Cross says, uh, yeah, I love the airport. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, he's quite the contrarian. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a very typical high school. Two floors, big, wide, squat building with red brick exterior. And uh, you approach the front doors. There's like, you know, six sets of front doors underneath a big overhanging roof leading into the school. I'm going to I'm going to see about getting uh get get getting a session with the guidance counselor cuz he may have insights into these kids and their little lives. Insight. Okay, so you're going to try and uh, and get a meeting with the guidance counselor. And, uh, you know, it goes, it actually goes very smoothly because Director Bowman called ahead and made the arrangements. You are expected. And so, uh, you know, you go and you talk to the receptionist, uh, this woman in her 30s behind a piece of plexiglass that has like the little speaker box in it. And she, you say like, hey, can I speak to one of the guidance counselors here? And she goes, yep, just down the door to the left of, uh, of my desk. And she sort of indicates pair of double doors nearby soon you find yourself speaking to the guidance counselor whose name is uh, Leon Goldstein he's he's a guy like maybe in his early 40s balding on top but he still has hair around the sides of his head wears uh where the those typical thick lensed 80s uh glasses and he says, so, uh, so, uh, what seems to be the problem here? Well, I've, uh, heard word of, uh, children going missing for a period of time. Not, uh, not permanently going missing, you understand, but, uh, I'm wondering if we should be worried about what these kids are getting up to, uh, in the time, uh, Based on truancy records, and I'd probably have, like, the profiles of the kids who had gone missing and then reappeared. Have you had any sessions with these children where they indicate uh, what they've been spending their time doing? 
Um, well, no. Uh, I have had sessions and meetings with a few of the children who've gone missing, but it really just seems like they've been playing hooky. Speaking to them, I get no impression that they've been off doing any illicit activities or committing any crimes like that. A lot of these students have very good grades and are on the up and up. Uh, some of our top learners here in, uh, in LaGuardia High. So, uh, no, you know, I haven't really, really noticed anything that would suggest that there's some grander conspiracy or, or I doubt it's anything like trafficking. I mean, they just come back to school like everything's normal. So, uh, what do you, what do you think they do? Like when they say what they do in their spare time, do they say like what they go to the movies or something? Like what they do in this time that they're missing? Oh, I mean, they like to, no, they tend to hang out, uh, at, uh, the local coffee shop place called beans. All right. I'm going to have to hit up beans, but, uh, does that count as a clue? Okay, so here, here is something that, uh, here's, here's a good opportunity to use some of, uh, some of these mechanics. So I'm going to suggest that as a player, you use the investigate move here if you want to learn a bit more. Oh yeah, I, I assumed that's what I was doing. No, I mean, it, you were, you're just asking some questions and because you had arranged this meeting, I didn't think you needed too much of a role. But you're starting to get information, and it sounds like you want to dive a little deeper, right? Hell yeah. So we're going to do an investigate roll. And the way this works is uh, basically you have to name uh, any power tags that you have that would apply to this situation. Um, okay, so is this situ- when we say this situation, are we talking about the guidance counselor interview or yeah yeah okay the, so f- you're you're trying to get more info from the guidance counselor all right in that case i have under under paranormal investigator i have investigation okay under paranormal special agent i have director bowman who we established had called ahead mm-hmm and under Department of Paranormal Ops, I have an authority figure. Oh, you know, I think uh, there's a good argument for each of those to benefit you in this investigation. So sure. I also have discreet under Department of Paranormal Ops, but I think in if I if this was me checking out beans, that's where I'm going to use discreet. Yeah, but exactly. For this, I've got investigation director Bowman and an authority figure. I think all of those apply here. Yeah, that is that is exactly the the ruling that I would make. So you have a power of three. You have three power tags that apply. So you need to roll 2d6 plus three and tell me the total, the total result. Uh, Total result is 11. Excellent. So... Uh, as I've mentioned when we were going over the mechanics, uh, the idea is that a, you need to get a 7 to score a hit. Between a 7 and a 9 is a weak hit, which can, which will sort of succeed, but sometimes with a complication. And then 10 and above is like a major success with no complications or anything. So you got 11. It's a great big success. And that means that you get clues equal to your power so you have three clues to spend and oh you my can, god 
Yeah, and so each of these clues, just like ask me a question or ask the NPC a question, uh, they all have to relate to this specific uh, instance, which is you're trying to get more information on uh, Emily Craig, the kids, and the, you know the kids who play hooky, and I, I guess maybe the Beans coffee shop also relates because it was mentioned. Yeah, but I'm not sure I want to start cashing in my clues just yet. I think maybe we should hit up Beans, but also I'm thinking, uh, what's Norb gonna do? Norb's gonna have a, a say in this, I figure. Yeah, Norb has been keeping quiet while you sort of ask the questions. And as uh, Cross is like, sounds good. We should probably check out Beans. And he gets up. Norb, uh, sort of quickly before Cross even fully gets to his feet, says to the guidance counselor, uh, counselor uh, Emily Craig. Emily Craig has has just gone missing. I, I know her mom, uh, Allison Craig. And uh, I was wondering, like, do you know anything about you know, maybe like who she hangs out with or, you know, any of her friends that we might talk to, maybe they know where she is. And, uh, and, uh, the, the guidance counselor, Leon sort of rubs his cheek and he's like, yeah, you know, I was talking to her about a week ago or so. And she said that, uh, some of, some of the cool kids have invited her to be like a part of their clique uh adam reynolds was the name of the guy uh emily had a crush on him and adam reynolds who hangs out with uh, this this clique of cool kids uh, they all they all meet at that coffee shop as well they invited her to join them she said she like didn't know what what happened for them to finally let her in but apparently she was really happy about this something about like moving up in the social strata you know i don't know Kids place a lot of importance on that sort of thing here. All right, let's hit up Beans, unless uh, Snodgrass has a role to make while he's here. No, no, that's uh, that's all he wanted to know. He, he's, he sort of nods and goes, all right, thanks. Adam Reynolds, right? All right, sounds good. Um, and so soon you head over to the Beans Coffee House. And, uh, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a, Beans is a chain of, of local coffee shops, typical hangout for, for the, uh, the LaGuardia high, high schoolers. Gonna quote Nirvana the band, the show here. And it's one of those piece of shit places that makes you buy something before you can use the bathroom. <laughs> That's right. Um, it is. Very much like, you know, a, a Starbucks-style place. You push through the glass door, and then you're hit by a wave of various coffee smells. They're playing smooth jazz while a barista, you know, slams the uh, the coffee uh, the coffee ground chamber. I don't know what that, that thing's called. That slams it to get the coffee grounds out, and then, like, does the grinder and flicks the trigger and tamps it all down. Uh, in just a very aggressive process. The barista also eyes you as you come in, and he sort of looks at you expectantly, waiting I for... Don't, I don't know if I'm going to go in, actually. I think I might just sort of... Norb hang, I, I might just, just goes sort of, in not thinking, and you hang back. 
Yeah, I think I like am gonna maybe stay in my in my continental and scope the place out using my discreet power and try and uh, spot one of these, see if uh, any of these kids seem to wander off to go do something clandestine or wander off with somebody um, who arrives. And in the meantime, I'll let Nord uh, lead this one from the inside. So the Norb goes in and uh, starts fumbling with change in his pockets at the counter, obviously, trying to just figure out what he can afford to buy. Thank God order... the coffee's covering his cheese smell. Yeah, in order to placate this uh, this barista. Um, now I would say this is a good time to use like one of your clues to ask me a question, because you're scoping out the area, right? Yeah. Um, I guess... Can I ask where are these kids going? Who are you? You're asking me where are these kids going? Yeah, I guess. Uh, Is that how the clue works? Well, like going where? What do you mean? Like, so like who who are these kids? And and and, like what what? Be more specific. So the the kids who go missing. mm Hmm. Like, where do they go after the coffee shop? That's a very good question. Um, So this is a case where I would say, as the MC, I'm not going to give you the answer for that, but I'm going to give you a lead instead. Sounds good. So you're watching Norb through the window as he tries to pick out a coffee and he's getting into like a minor argument with the barista because he just wants a normal coffee. And this is the kind of place where you got to get like a venti macchiato or something like that. He's like, no, just like a normal, you just do normal coffee. Like this is, you serve coffee, right? And he's getting into an argument as all eyes are on Norb as a result. And you're, scanning the interior of uh of the coffee shop and you can see near the back uh there is totally a cool clique of high schoolers sitting around a table drinking their coffee watching this go on and the you notice at least one of them is wearing like a letter jacket from LaGuardia High these you suspect are the cool kids that the guidance counselor was referring to. Maybe Adam Reynolds is even one of them. All right. I uh, I just want to keep my eyes on them. You know, the, my thinking here is that they won't want to talk to me a suit. Like, I got no jurisdiction over a bunch of fucking teenagers. But I can, I'm discreet enough that I can hang back keep an eye on them and see what they're up to. And if they go somewhere or meet with somebody, that's my lead that I'm looking for. It's a good idea. And uh, it's working out for you as well to have Norb acting almost like a distraction. Like he's just going to sort of bulldoze. How his we way ba- around it's how thing. we bait a trap, man. Exactly. Um, so you watch as Norb like finally manages to get a drip coffee from the barista. He pays for it and he looks around and there's he also notices this very obvious like sort of goth emo cool kids clique sitting together and clearly they are from the right high school. So he walks right over and he goes, uh, 
Hello, fellow kids. Um, I was wondering, do any of you guys know uh, Emily Craig? She, she's the daughter of a friend of mine. We've been looking all over for her. And immediately you can see that these teenagers are like, they're clamming up. They just have like blank, ho vaguely hostile expressions on their faces. And they all look at one guy uh and the the one guy who is clearly the leader uh he's an asian fellow and he has like a big sort of emo patch hairstyle over one eye he looks up at norb and says i don't know who you're talking about old man but can you just piss off already and let us enjoy our coffee all right norb's just like looks completely taken aback and he's like you know what you know what's wrong with your generation and norb just proceeds to launch into a tirade about Gen Z and how they have no respect for their elders. Blah, 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 blah. The kids are just like, they have, you know, scowls on their faces, but they remain totally silent until Norb runs out of gas with his, uh, with his rant. And he finally goes, ah, hell with ya. And he swigs a big gulp of coffee, which is obviously too hot, and goes, ah, oh, goddammit, crushes the cup in his hand and stalks out of the coffee shop. And he just, like, pops out the door and stands there seething, very annoyed with the teenagers. All right. Uh, I mean, I'm, uh... I, he goes, I'm... they're not cooperating. They never well... cooperate. I, I don't need them to cooperate with me. I just need them to keep going about their business and I'll figure out what they're up to. You want me to go back in there? Uh, maybe you should sit in the passenger seat. <laughs> he gets into the passenger seat and feebly tries to like wipe spilled coffee off of his shirt. And I roll the windows down. <laughs> and you do. You don't actually have to wait that long um, before... The group of kids who are, you know, the, the cool kids at the table uh, emerge from the coffee shop and they're all talking amongst themselves uh, in sort of crosswood point and say, look, you rattled them. They they got up. <laughs> Norv's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, whatever. I have that effect on everybody. You watch as the kids start uh, walking off in a crowd in their little like group. They're walking off down the street away from where you're parked. Uh, all right, time to... Oh, maybe I should uh, use my secret arsenal to deploy a little drone to follow them. Hey, that's a good idea. Like that. All right, so I'll, I won't be tailing them in the car. I'll, like, uh, send out a little buzzy hover drone... And that'll follow the kids, and then I'll always keep the car, like, like at least one turn away from them. So they can't pick up that I'm tailing them. Do you want uh, Norb to drive while you operate the drone? Yeah, sure. All right. So the two of you are doing a sneaky maneuver where you have a drone tailing them at a bit of a distance, and then the car is following at an even greater distance. And you... Uh, does your drone have any sort of audio recording equipment? Probably not, eh? They're pretty loud. Uh, no, I'm. I think I'm just. I'm just getting video here, but I'm just trying to stay on these guys. All right. So you follow them uh, towards a residential neighborhood, and uh, 
you watch as it seems like they're all just sort of going home and and saying their goodbyes. You watch as the group is sort of like splintering off. You know, they'll pass a house. One of them will wave and then head up the drive to that house. But and they all these kids clearly live in the same neighborhood. Not only do they go to school together, but they live in the same neighborhood. And finally, when it's just down to the last kid who is the leader, he doesn't walk into any house. Instead, he takes a side road through a gate down a dirt path towards a junkyard. Oh, shit. Here we go. Is the junkyard going to be where we have our confrontation? Uh, it could be. Is there anything else you want to do before we wrap up this part of the session? Uh... You can fly your drone down the dirt road if you want. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've got two uh, two clues already. Maybe I go in, like, like, once we figure out that it's the junkyard, maybe then I use discreet and secret arsenal to use the drone to sort of scope out the junkyard. Uh, you, I don't even think you necessarily have to use those power tags unless you want to roll investigate again. Like, is that normal? To, to roll investigate a second time? Yeah. You can absolutely do it. Uh, you're, I, I would say that if you're going to do it, uh, we'll sort of dissolve the, uh, the remaining clues from the previous check because they were more to do with these kids. If you want to investigate the junkyard, we'll make a new investigate check with clues pertaining to that. Mm. In that case, I I may actually want to stick with the two clues that I have. I mean, why not both? If you want, you can use them now and then roll to investigate the junkyard. Ooh, yeah. Okay, so uh, who is this kid? Who is this kid? Uh, you have a bunch of records that you printed off uh, back at the pantry with access to uh, the the government database that you had. Sifting through the files as you watch the kid on the monitor for your drone, you come across a photo. This is a kid whose name is Victor Chang. If you can't think of a specific question, I could just give you a, a clue to go with, the, with this scene. Um, yeah, does that use up the third clue? Yeah, I'd say this will just give you, like, a closer look at this guy. Yeah, I guess, um... Oh, you know what? My my question would then be, like, what is Chang's background? Like, what what's his home situation? Where does, like, um... Yeah. Okay. Um... So Does he live in the same neighborhood, for example? Like, that sort of thing. So looking through his file, he does live in this neighborhood. He does not live down this laneway. Uh, the Changs, in fact, live in an unassuming two-story house that you passed, that your drone, like, passed by, and Victor passed by to get to this road. Uh, his father, Phil Chang, is like a 50-something middle management guy, and his wife, Monica, or his mom, uh, Phil's wife, Monica, is a homemaker. So that basically rules out the idea that, like, maybe his dad owns the junkyard or something. So, 
Um, yeah, I think at this point I'll do another dice roll, and this time I'm trying to do discrete investigation with my secret arsenal. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's good. So uh, discrete investigation and secret arsenal, so that's another power of three. And then roll 2d6 plus 3. And it's a 10. It's a 10. Right on. So here's where we're going to leave off. Uh, you do, you, you are sort of following along from a distance as Victor heads into this junkyard. And uh, as he does so, uh, well, actually, okay, so you get a 10. So that means you get three clues. Um, as he does so, though, you do catch something else, another detail about him before you sort of pull back and, and look around at the junkyard itself. On the back of Victor's jacket, he has a very prominent biohazard logo, uh, embroidered. Looks like something he added on himself. Gotta check out that cool new band, Biohazard. And uh, let's end by you spending a clue to investigate the junkyard. Oh, but do I have to? Uh, I guess you don't have to. I guess, um, are there any immediate threats if I enter the junkyard? Um, are there any immediate threats where you, when you enter the junkyard? Besides the typical danger of a junkyard, it would seem that the only threat is the people who hang out there. And you have no doubt that this is where the teenagers go to hang because as you fly your drone like higher up above the landscape to get a better view, you can see deep in the junkyard on the edge of the property is a derelict house. And you watch as Victor enters. Dun, okay, dun, dun. But, but there's no junkyard dogs there's no trip wires or anything like no in fact this junkyard looks uh very neglected doesn't look like it's all that operational maybe it's more like a dump where people just come and drop off their trash norb i'm worried we're gonna find a bunch of dead kids buried under old cars yeah that doesn't bode well hopefully emily isn't among them i'd hate to overhear that conversation at the grocery store all right, this is fun. I do feel like we're kind of bright, like part of the whole pitch when I pitched this or con this podcast originally was like all these podcasts, people play in RPGs and nobody's talking about how to run them. But now we're just doing the thing I said we wouldn't do. Well, you know, it's, we're sort of talking about uh, we are talking about how it's run even as we play it. And I guess a little button that I can say, you know, I hinted at it before, but after playing Teeth with you, this very much feels like a similar kind of system. Like, the specific moves are different, obviously. The player moves are different. But it's a very similar idea of, you know, pick your move, pick anything that applies, you do the roll, success or fail, that kind of a thing. Like, the format feels very similar. Do you find that? Uh... Yeah, I I don't know. It's it's tricky because um it's like the specifics are the thing that's different, but the format of how this kind of RPG flows feels similar to me. 
Yeah, I think that's correct. I just think it's interesting, like, uh, re the more I engage with Forged in the Dark, the more uh, critical that whole negotiation of, like, position and risk, uh, or, or position and effect, risk and effect, uh, seems to be. And that seems to be, like, the one thing that is missing from like like not missing but different in the flow of these two games is that in blades in the dark or forge in the dark games there seems to always be a good sense of what i am gonna get when i make a roll whereas in this one it's like i don't know there, there's part of that is the excitement of like i'm gonna roll to investigate and we'll see how well i do um but like I don't know what kind of clues I'm going to get necessarily, uh, or at least I don't know. It's or, or like it I get the clues, but then I'm not sure how I'm going to use them. Whereas, like in in Forge in the Dark, it's always like the GM immediately tells you how, like what your chances what your chances are to do something are, and what the what's going to happen if it goes wrong sort of thing, like, or, or, you know, what you're risking. Yeah. I, I do think, you know, when I was describing the mechanics, I referred to something like clues as almost like an in-game currency. I do think it's interesting that the way this one works is like you roll to see how much, like how many points to spend you will get. And then you decide how you spend those points based on the story context. It's kind of an interesting system, as opposed to the regular sort of RPG give and take of, I want to do this, do the check, success or fail. In this case, it's like, I want to do this, do the check, this gives you X number of points, spend them as you see fit in relation to that check. There's definitely a certain amount of like, like I feel this it's almost like when you know in in first person shooters when you like get a special type of ammo like you get rockets for the rocket launcher but then you're like all right I'm going to hold on to those and just means like you never use the rocket launcher until like the very last boss and I find like I have that same um like resource hoarding instinct when it comes to the clues is like when you tell me i have three clues it's like all right i'm gonna walk up to the boss and fucking spring my three clues and then i'm gonna know all his weaknesses and beat him <laughs> but as i said those clues are very specific to different contexts so like the initial clues that you got in this session were um they were specific to, like, finding out where the kids go when they play hooky as that relates to the, the guidance counselor, right? And then once we got to the point where you did know where they go when they cut, cut school, they go to the junkyard, and you wanted to investigate the junkyard, well, that's a whole new set of clues. And so, as I said, like, if you want to investigate the junkyard, that's a new investigate role. So your clues from the previous one will disappear if you do that. So you can, you know, ask them now or they'll go. There's definitely kind of a time limit. Interesting. That'd be something where... Uh, it's like, it's not even a time limit. It is a context limit. You could have... I would have let you bank those clues and investigate the entire school asking about the kids there because that sort of all applies to that part of the investigation. But as soon as we got to the junkyard and you're like, I want to start checking out the junkyard... 
that's when, okay, we need a new investigation, clues reset with that role. Interesting. Well, and I don't want to hold up the podcast, you know, with my investigation. So, uh, anyways, do we have anything else to cover? Not me. This has been episode 131, recorded on the 29th of November, 2022. If you want to get in touch with us, see when we post new episodes or follow us, check us out on Facebook, Compare and Campaign on Facebook, and uh, we're well 30 episodes or so behind now but um no not that bad but but still like 25 episodes behind now on the wordpress but comparing campaign.wordpress we're gonna have the portraits that i done came up with and stuff you can see art that i provided of various characters because we got to this act and the players were like i don't know who any of those people are and started to put a visual to that idea yeah, but if you find uh, me, uh, I don't know, an alien egg, don't steal because it's haunted. If you uh, do, you want to surrender in the Nightside Eclipse army? You go call in your friend Valfar and Draglin guy. What do you got over there? You say something? Oh, I was gonna say, uh, I I guess the level up that that ding equivalent for City of Mist is advance your character, acquire more power tags. Hey, man, just get some clues. Just get a clue. Get a clue, dude. Not me.